U.S. is working to strengthen regional security in the Middle East as Israel continues its war against Hamas. Israel, Qatar and Bahrain are among the countries that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is expected to visit in the coming days. Families of victims of a landslide in Malaysia last year that killed dozens come together but also want answers as to what led to the tragedy. On the anniversary of a deadly disaster, victims' families and survivors return to the site to light candles and show traditional respects to their lost loved ones. And the European Commission recently recommended opening negotiations for Ukraine and Moldova to join the European Union. Today is Monday, December 18th, and this is VOA's International Edition. Hello, I'm Kim Lewis. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to the Middle East in a bid to strengthen regional security as Israel continues its war against Hamas. Israel is facing growing pressure to protect civilians in its military operations and secure the release of all the hostages kidnapped during Hamas' October 7th terrorist incursion. VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias has the story. Israel, Qatar and Bahrain are among the countries that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is expected to visit in the coming days. The announcement came as more reports of destruction and human despair in Gaza emerged Sunday. In that context, several U.S. legislators urge Israel to protect civilians as it pursues its war against Hamas. 68,000 children have been killed. 85% of the people in Gaza have had to leave their homes. They're living in shelters. Disease is going up. When it comes to the humanitarian uh, crisis, um, we still have a near total siege. Now, as of today, there may be some progress. Uh, Israel finally opening the Karem Shalom crossing, which is a very important crossing. Uh, it shouldn't take this long. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, interviewed on NBC, also expressed hope for Israel to limit civilian deaths and encouraged it to think about the future. Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries cannot normalize with Israel if they've seen if they're having been seen as throwing the Palestinians under the bus. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is also facing growing criticism domestically over the hostage crisis, which began on October 7, when Hamas carried out a deadly terrorist attack and kidnapped more than 240 Israelis and foreigners. Last week, three of the captives were mistakenly killed by the Israel Defense Forces, and a funeral for one of them was held Sunday. Relatives of other hostages began camping near Israel's Ministry of Defense and demanding negotiations to secure their release. We want to get them alive. So this is why we're here every day until we heard from the government that they are sitting talking. Hamas has said it won't release more hostages until the Israeli offensive stops. But Qatar, who's been working as a mediator country in the conflict, isn't giving up on diplomatic efforts to renew a humanitarian pause. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. The Israeli military said Sunday it discovered a large tunnel shaft in Gaza just a few hundred meters from the Eras crossing and an Israeli military base. My colleague Rick Pantaleo spoke with VOA Mideast correspondent Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem about this controversy and other developments in the Israel-Hamas war. 
Quds is just 400 meters from the border. Israel has said all along that Hamas has a whole network of tunnels underneath Gaza. If you remember a few weeks ago, they found a tunnel under the Shifa hospital when Israel was getting a lot of criticism for attacking that hospital and that some of the patients weren't able to leave. And Israel says there are still thousands of Hamas fighters hiding in these tunnels and that it's going to take weeks, if not months, to kind of make sure that they can get to as many of them as possible. Linda, with the discovery of the tunnel so close to the Israeli border, I understand the Israeli intelligence community is under fire for not noticing that? Yes, it's really hard to understand. I mean, this whole event, everything that happened on October 7th, Hamas was openly practicing for the kind of attack that it did on October 7th, taking over Israeli communities. And the fact that the Israeli intelligence wasn't able to get either what didn't know or wasn't able to get the information to the right people, they're beginning to talk about it. I mean, what Israeli officials and the army says is that after the war, there will have to be an investigation into what happened, but you can't do that during the war. And first, Israel has to focus on fighting Hamas and on freeing the hostages and all of the questioning about what happened will come later. But it's really hard to understand how Israeli intelligence, which is supposed to be, you know, one of the best in the world, either didn't want to believe what they were seeing or didn't see what was happening. And there's going to be a a pretty severe and thorough investigation. And uh, once again, the humanitarian aid is only trickling in to those who need it in Gaza. And according to a report on Sunday, they said that dozens of desperate Palestinians surrounded aid trucks, I guess, crossing over the Rafah crossing with Egypt, uh, forcing the trucks to stop before climbing on board, pulling down boxes and carrying them off. Yeah, I mean, the situation is getting really chaotic in Gaza. First of all, for the first time, Israel did open the Karim Shalom crossing, a crossing to let aid come in through not only Rafah, but through Israel. Israel says that Hamas is stealing some of that aid. They released footage today of gunmen on top of some of the trucks, taking the trucks away. But at the same time, people are just getting increasingly desperate. There are reports that people really don't have enough food to eat, that whatever food stores they had have been used up over the past two plus months. There are reports of a growing health crisis. It's gotten cold and some people are sleeping on the street. There are reports of an increase among children, especially of diarrhea, respiratory issues. So there's really concern that unless massive amounts of aid comes in and unless there's a ceasefire, that the death toll is even going to increase. According to the Palestinian-run health ministry in Gaza, the death toll is over 18,000. Now, that includes both Hamas fighters and civilians because they don't distinguish between the two. But in any case, you're talking about the deaths of thousands of women and children. Um, And it's just going to get worse unless a lot of aid gets in quickly. We're following these other stories from around the world. North Korea fired an unidentified ballistic missile Sunday, Japan's Coast Guard and the South Korean military said, as the country condemned U.S.-led military shows of force as tantamount to a preview of a nuclear war. The missile was launched toward the sea off North Korea's east coast, according to the South Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
Chilean voters have rejected a conservative constitution to replace the country's dictatorship-era charter a little over a year after turning down a proposed leftist charter. With 96% of votes counted late Sunday, about 55.8% had voted no to the new charter, with about 42.4% in favor. The African Union Transition Mission in Somalia on Sunday resumed handing over security responsibilities to Somali government forces after a three-month pause, officials said. The mission handed over security control of the State House, also known as Villa Somalia, where Somali President Mohammed Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud resides and works. One year after a landslide in Malaysia killed dozens of campers, victims, families and survivors came together to remember their loved ones. But as Dave Grunbaum reports, they say they won't have closure until they get all the facts about what led to the tragedy. On the anniversary of a deadly disaster, victims, families and survivors returned to the site to light candles and show traditional respects to their lost loved ones. Last year, on December 16th, an early morning landslide swept over an organic farming campsite in Batangkali, Malaysia, killing 31 people. This photograph was taken just hours before Chinsu King and her five-year-old son Daniel were killed. Vincent Corway Fong pays tribute to his wife and son in their home. Back then, it was hard for me to let go because I felt like I did not have the chance to finish our conversations and say goodbye to them. Brian Tang's tent was about five feet from the path of the landslide. Tang says he's formed a connection with the families. Uh, we find we have a, even though a bond together because we are after the incidents, we want to help each other to come up from the sadness. Victims, families and survivors say they're on a quest to find the underlying reasons behind this tragedy. The government released a report in October that says the landslide was triggered by slope failure after heavy rainfall. But the report does not explain why a farming campsite were able to operate in what experts call a risky area. The report also does not address an environmental impact assessment approved in 2013 by the Department of Environment that said the area where the farm and campsite were located was not to be developed. Then why there is a setting, uh, 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 a campsite or an uh, organic farm there and nobody uh, uh, stopped them? When I read the reports, I wasn't satisfied. It was too simple. The report merely claimed the rainy December weather as the cause of the landslide. The fact that land restricted for development was somehow developed for business was due to negligence. So其实还有一些动作是关系到管理，有一些是是属于人为，也是属于人为，也是呃那个土崩为什么原本的地那个地方不可以营业，然后变成能营业，也是一个疏忽。so, 
VOA has been repeatedly sending messages with questions to several government offices, but has not received any answers. Victims' families and survivors have hired an attorney to investigate and prepare for potential lawsuits. Our final goal is justice. Those who are responsible should face justice. This will be the second consecutive year that Kaur won't be with his wife and son on Christmas. But he says his love for them inspires him to keep pushing for answers. Dave Grunebaum, VOA News, Klang, Malaysia. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Kim Lewis. The European Union Commission has recently recommended opening negotiations for Ukraine and Moldova to join the European Union. And the smaller Moldova, like its northern neighbor Ukraine, is also contending with Russian troops inside its borders. For nearly 30 years, Moldova's military was an underfunded afterthought. One of the poorest countries in Europe, the former Soviet Republic declared itself a neutral state after gaining independence in 1991. Its military membership steadily declining to about 6,000 troops, less than 25 percent of its Soviet-era levels. Then Russia invaded Moldova's northern neighbor, Ukraine. We could hear the first bombs go off in Odessa from Chisinau because it was a cloudy day and the sound traveled that far. So all of Chisinau woke up absolutely panicked, thinking that there were bombs exploding. Kent Logston began work as U.S. ambassador to Moldova about a week before the February 2022 invasion. He said the invasion was eye-opening, especially as word spread of atrocities in the Ukrainian city of Bucha. People here were very shocked. It was not the Russians that they knew, the Russians they had worked with for generations that had lived here. It kind of drove a wedge between what people thought about Russia and what they thought about Russia's view of Moldova was. Do you think that having that neutral status is still a guarantee against Russian aggression? Um, I personally don't think so, because Ukraine was a neutral state as well. Moldovan Defense Minister Anatoly Nasati said when members of the pro-Western government in Chisinau saw the invasion of Ukraine and Russian battle plans indicating targets inside Moldova, they realized they needed to accelerate their plans to bring Moldova's military into the 21st century. As we've seen in their plans, when we heard their rhetorics, definitely we was targeted and was considered as a next target. That's why currently we are working very hard in order to enhance our operational capability. I've been in office just two years. However, in this period of time, we've been able to identify the resources to increase the budget. How much have you increased the budget? We started with a budget of 0.3. That was one of the lowest in Europe and I think in the world. Currently we have 0.55. 
and that allowed us even to conduct some acquisitions. What do you need most? About 90% of the equipment is outdated. Maintenance become very costly. In certain cases, there is impossibility to find the spare parts because nobody produces them anymore. My priority now is to make a modernization of the equipment looking to implement NATO standard. POA traveled to the military training grounds about an hour's drive east of the capital to see firsthand Moldova's defense needs. We didn't have to go far before we found this old Soviet tank. It provides some protection, but it by far it does not provide the protection that the current uh, battlefield uh, requires. Would you actually have to use that if you went to war right now? We would have to use vehicles like that, yes. Brigadier General Sergiu Trimpe is the deputy chief of Moldova's general staff. When you don't invest in the military for 30 years, it's difficult uh, to, to change it overnight. So you need time, uh, you need to integrate that equipment. Uh, so we're working on all this. These are D-20s, artillery pieces dating back to the Soviet era. Ukraine transitioned away from these to the NATO standard howitzers when supplies started running short during the war. And now Moldova wants to modernize with Western howitzers too. Since the war in Ukraine began, the United States and the European Union have pledged nearly $90 million in foreign military assistance for Moldova to help its tiny military get up to speed. But upgrading even a small force takes years, so officials say that for now, Moldovan troops will need to rely on what they have. Carla Bab, VOA News, Malbaca Training Grounds, Moldova. As Ukraine moves closer to joining the EU, money to sustain its war effort against invading Russia hit a familiar roadblock with an ally of Russia's president in the EU. VOA's Arash Arabasadi has the story. Rescue workers fight flames in Ukraine's Odessa region after a downed drone starts a fire in a residential area killing at least one civilian. Ukraine's Air Force said it destroyed 20 Russian drones overnight, and the regional governor said it was the third Russian airstrike in the past week. As Ukraine readies for another winter at war with Russia, European leaders met late last week in the Belgian capital to discuss Ukraine's bid to join the EU. 26 member states decided to support the proposal of a review of the multiannual framework. 26, this is not enough to make a legally binding decision. The European Union consists of 27 member states. All 27 must unanimously approve other nations joining the fold. The lone holdout to Ukraine's accession remains Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, considered Russian President Vladimir Putin's strongest ally in the EU. After what's been described as a stalemate in Brussels, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he suggested that Orban leave the room while the other 26 nations discussed a 50 billion euro aid package to Ukraine, something Orban so far refuses to support. Orban promptly took to social media to call the decision senseless, irrational and wrong, adding that Hungary is not changing its position. Despite failing to reach financial terms of support at the meeting in Brussels, European leaders expressed hope for the future of war-torn Ukraine. We are working very hard, of course, to have a uh, result uh, of where there is an agreement of 27 member states. But I think it is now also necessary to work um, on potential alternatives 
to have an operational solution in case that a, an agreement by 27, so unanimity is not possible. The Brussels summit came in the same week that Putin held his annual year-end marathon news conference in Moscow. The Russian president, who recently announced he'd seek another term in the Kremlin, said Ukraine's free ride of financial aid would soon come to an end, predicting fractures in the EU and a hyperpartisan U.S. Congress. Putin also expressed a willingness to reach an agreement with the U.S. on returning Western detainees without revealing many details. As world leaders debate aid packages and the future of Ukraine's EU membership at meetings likely in January, a drone strike in Ukraine's Kherson region serves as a reminder that another winter at war is coming, with or without material support. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. This is Science in a Minute. Most living things on Earth require oxygen to survive. Our atmosphere, while containing mostly nitrogen, is also 21% oxygen as well. 96.5% of the toxic atmosphere of neighboring planet Venus is made up of carbon dioxide and has virtually no oxygen. In a joint project between NASA and the German Aerospace Center, scientists, for the first time, have detected a thin layer of atomic oxygen stuck between two other layers of the Venusian atmosphere on the day side of the planet. Atomic oxygen shouldn't be confused with breathable or molecular oxygen. Atomic oxygen contains one oxygen atom, while molecular or breathable oxygen is made up of two oxygen atoms. Researchers say the atomic oxygen on Venus is made when the sun's ultraviolet radiation breaks down atmospheric carbon dioxide and monoxide into oxygen atoms and other chemicals. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. Until next time, I'm Kim Lewis. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The long-term United Nations peacekeeping force known as MONUSCO in the Democratic Republic of the Congo has agreed to withdraw at the request of the government of the DRC. Speaking at the United Nations Security Council, Ambassador Robert Wood, U.S. Alternative Representative for Special Political Affairs, expressed appreciation for the DRC government's commitment to assuming responsibility for civilian protection and extending state authority in the provinces where MONUSCO is deployed. We welcome the flexibility built into the plan and stress the drawdown from each province should be thoroughly and transparently evaluated for any negative impacts on civilian protection and the humanitarian situation. Major gaps will be unacceptable and should prompt an immediate reassessment and a pause in subsequent phases. As in other peacekeeping transitions, MONUSCO's drawdown will be challenging, warned Ambassador Wood. The DRC faces a looming financial cliff when transitioning from assessed to voluntary contributions, amidst growing humanitarian and development needs. 
the United States Agency for International Development and Department of State, allocated more than $956 million in humanitarian aid and bilateral assistance to the DRC in fiscal year 2022, not including our support to MONUSCO, said Ambassador Wood. We call on the international community to mobilize additional resources now to bolster the work of UN agencies, funds, and programs in preparation for MONUSCO's departure. MONUSCO's drawdown also demands a new vision for security and non-security solutions to the Eastern DRC's 30-year crisis, urged Ambassador Wood. The speed at which Rwanda and the DRC approached the brink of war in recent weeks was alarming. We welcome the commitments both governments have made toward de-escalation, but more must be done to reduce tensions and prevent miscalculations. Again, we call on Rwanda to end its support for M23 and withdraw from DRC territory. The United States is encouraged by the DRC government's preparation for free and fair elections on December 20th. We urge political actors and civilians alike to refrain from hate speech and divisive rhetoric, which could lead to violence. All Congolese, said Ambassador Wood, should be able to cast their votes without fearing for their safety. Successful elections will be an important step in the DRC's effort to maintain peace and stability long term. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 